in his uh, book, Waiting, uh, or Waiting, Finding Hope, Where God Seems Silent, Ben Patterson tells a story from his personal life. He writes this, in the summer of 1988, three friends and I climbed Mount Lyle, the highest peak in Yosemite National Park. Two of us were experienced mountaineers and two of us were not. <laughs> I was not one of the experienced two. The climb to the top and back was to take a better part of a day due in large part to the difficulty of the glacier that one must cross in order to get to the top. As the hours passed and we trudged up that glacier, the two mountaineers opened up a wide gap between me and my companion. Being competitive by nature, I began to look for shortcuts that I might be able to take in order to beat them to the top. I thought I saw one, one to the right of an outcropping of rock. So I went up, deaf to the protests of my companions. 30 minutes later, I was trapped on top of a rock there in Lyle Glacier, looking down several hundred feet of sheer slope of ice. I was only 10 feet away from safety of a rock, but one little slip, and I wouldn't stop sliding until I landed in the valley floor about 50 miles away. <laughs> I was stuck, and I was scared. Patterson's words, I think, um, accurately describe the predicament that uh, many of us fall into. People get stuck because they're competitive. Um, they they want to make an impression. They, they think they have all of life under control, and so they take shortcuts to beat other people. And they take the turn around an outcropping of rock and suspecting that there'll be nothing at the end except uh, joy and roses, but instead they find themselves stuck and scared. Now listen, I have no doubt that some people here this morning in a, in a group this size, that there are people here that are stuck. You can't move. And you can't get out of what you're into. You know that one bad step will put you on your way all the way to the rock bottom. I've had that experience. My guess is everyone here at one time or another has had a similar experience. That was the same experience that many in the church of Corinth had, um, had lived out. Um, they were stuck. <laughs> they had wronged Paul. They um, had followed a teaching and a preaching of uh, a few false teachers and it had, had gotten them off the track. They had left the gospel of Christ and they had uh, fallen into trying to um, keep uh, the old covenant. They had gotten off track and now they were stuck. I invite you to turn with me this morning once again to 2 Corinthians. We're going to start by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you haven't been with us, we've been going through a series that's been walking through this uh, uh, book of uh, 2 Corinthians. It's a, it's a letter that very few people have really taken time to, to look at, and we've enjoyed that process 
and we're going to finish it up all the way through till, till May, but we're looking at chapter 7 this morning. Now, um, let me catch you up on a little bit of what's been going on, a little bit of history if you haven't been with us. Remember, I have to remember, Paul's relationship with his church was that of a spiritual father. I mean, after all, Paul had been the one who planted this church in Corinth, and he had discipled many of these believers there in Corinth, and he had um, encouraged them in their faith. Um, As their spiritual father, Paul also had to correct them. After planting that church and staying with them, uh, spending, I think, something like 18 months with them, Um, Paul needed to move on, plan other churches, and so he left, planning to return at a later date. But then he learned of some trouble that was going on in that church. Some false teachers had come along and were teaching them um, other things other than the gospel that Paul had taught them. So in an attempt to fix the problem, Paul returns for a surprise visit, unscheduled visit. But things didn't go really well for Paul when he surprised him with that visit. They, they didn't appreciate Paul's visit. So things went from bad to worse, and he left there with a broken heart. After his failure from that visit, what Paul decided to do was he would dispatch Titus um, to the church with a letter that he had written, a letter of correction. It's a letter that we don't have. It's a letter that's been lost. He identifies it as a severe letter, um, identifying and calling out the sin of those in that church of Corinth. Um, Then he became so worried about uh, their reaction to his letter that Uh, he's unable to rest. And so what he does is he goes up to Macedonia in order to meet Titus, you know, uh, to hear what type of response they had to this letter that Paul had uh, written them. And somewhere in Macedonia, Paul meets up with Titus and learned to his overwhelming joy of their, their repentance, the repentance of these Corinthian believers So with that background, look with me, chapter 7, starting in verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So he's concerned, he's worried, he doesn't know what this letter, what's going to happen with this letter. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Titus was returned after having delivered that letter. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing and your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, that's the letter that was lost, that's the severe letter. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Paul recognizes here that his severe letter may have caused those in that church some pain. (laughs) Um, But it's clear here that he also uh, feels like it's a good thing, a good thing to feel sorrow over sin, to be grieved by wrong choices. Why? Well, because you understand sorrow leads 
sometimes to right choices. You don't get to a, a good place until you first of all recognize that where you are is not a good place. You can't get unstuck until you realize that you're already stuck. Sometimes see, you have to hear the thing that you don't want to hear in order to get to the place that you've always wanted to be. So in the end, Paul says here, listen, I don't regret it. I don't regret writing that letter to you. Why? Because it helped them get unstuck. It brought them back to God. It brought them to repentance. Look with me at verse 9. He says here, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Repentance, <laughs> that word, it's easy to say, isn't it? But it's awfully hard to do. Repentance is a, is a change in every way at every level. Listen, repentance is a change in me. It's not a change of my spouse. It's not a, a change of my job. It's not a, a change of where I live or with whom I hang out with. No, repentance is a change in the place where it's needed most that is in me. <laughs> Originally, that word repentance was not a religious word. Um, it comes from a culture where people were essentially nomadic um, and they lived in a, in a world where there were no maps or or street signs, it's, and it's easy to get lost walking you know, through the desert. You become aware that the countryside around you, it looks kind of strange. And you finally say to yourself, listen, I'm going to have to uh, change. I'm going in the wrong direction. See, that's the first act of repentance. First act of repentance is recognizes, recognizing sin for what it is. It's a willingness to admit that you're wrong. The second act of repentance is an action. See, true repentance resolves to change one's behavior. It refuses to stay lost <laughs> and instead turns around and goes in a new direction. Years ago, um, our family, uh, you know, when our kids were young, uh, we went out to San Francisco um, on vacation. And, and one of the days, we decided that we're going to ride bikes over the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, um, Jacob was small enough that he had to ride on a ride-along behind my bike. We rented one of those. Um, and then uh, Hope and uh, Becky, they rode a tandem bike. Um, it, was, it was a cold day, but man, I tell you, it was It was beautiful. It was, it was a beautiful ride. And we finally got to the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge, that little town of Sausalito. Um, we were all pretty worn out. Um, but Jacob, see, I mean, he hadn't really been pedaling much. Uh, he had been on that ride along, and he wanted to go eight miles further um, to go up and see the giant redwood trees. And so we begged, and so I found, okay, okay. So, uh, you know, Becky and Hope stayed there in, in Sausalito and enjoyed the sun and you know, some cold drinks. And I decided, okay, Jacob, let's ride up to those giant redwood trees. Halfway there, you know, trying to follow the path, I didn't really have much of a map. Halfway there, I decided, you know, 
something doesn't look right here. Something just doesn't look right. So I start off in another direction. And then after a little bit, I thought, you know, this, this doesn't, doesn't look right as well. Um, Jacob, meanwhile, sitting behind me on the bike, I don't know if his feet were up or just relaxing, as you know, whatever. But Jacob finally says to me, Dad, are you lost? <laughs> Being a very humble person and as a dad, I said, no, I'm not lost. Uh, you know, and so we ride on a little further. Uh, finally, uh, you know, stopping and, and looking, trying to find a, a map to look at, uh, which was really no help at all. Jacob finally says, well, why don't you stop and ask somebody? Of course, then, you know, that male uh, hormone kicked in. And I says, no way. I'm not asking anybody how to find those giant redwood trees, you know. Um, and, and, and I wanted to pretend like I was fully in control, like I knew exactly where I was going. I don't want to stop. That's a terrible admission to my inadequacy, you know. But that's what it took. <laughs> it took that. I ended up asking directions. It took that for us to find our way finally to those giant redwood trees. That's exactly what repentance is all about. It takes admitting that you're wrong and then turning around and going in the right direction. Now, I want you to notice something here, that repentance begins with a heartfelt grief over sin. Look with me at verse 9 again. But as it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you are grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And then in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Um, the uh, Greek word translated grief there is used 26 times in the New Testament. Half of those occurrences take place here in this letter of 2 Corinthians, and half of those out of 2 Corinthians take place here in this passage. This is the clearest statement, I think, in all of Scripture on the feelings that accompany repentance. If you're real repentance, you will feel a good grief, <laughs> an internal grief, an internal hurting over sin. And if it's a good grief or a godly grief, it will produce a true repentance. I mean, throughout Scripture, think about it, throughout Scripture, you find that when those who see God for who he is, they give up that smug sense that they have things more or less all together, right? Job, who was a righteous man by any standard, said in Job 42, as he encountered God, he said, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After Isaiah saw the Lord seated on a throne in Isaiah chapter 6, what's he say? He says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. When Jesus miraculously provided the fish in Luke chapter 5, Peter says, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. That sense of unworthiness comes from really meeting with God. And when you meet with God, you really see your unworthiness and you grieve over your unworthiness and it leads to repentance. 
But I want you to notice here that not all grief is good grief. (laughs) Sometimes it's a grief that leads to repentance, but sometimes it's a worldly grief. Or as the NIV says, uh, a worldly sorrow. Look with me at the rest of verse 10. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly sorrow is a, a kind of grief that comes because one's actions result in missing out on what the world has to offer. It feels bad because I, I, it wants more of, of, of the world. Worldly grief um, feels bad. It, it focuses on how hurt they are and, and it regrets getting caught. That's a worldly grief. But it does not grieve the sin itself. In contrast, godly grief recognizes that I have rejected God. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament. I love his line. Joseph in the Old Testament captures, I think, when he says, how could I do this great sin and evil against God? That's godly grief. And that godly grief produces real repentance. I want you to notice the results of this repentance. Um, uh, it, it brings Paul this great joy. Look back with me at verse 4. Look what he says here at the end. I am overflowing with joy. Skip ahead to the end of verse 7. Your zeal for me, so I rejoiced still more. Beginning of verse 9. As it is, I rejoice. At the end of this whole passage, down in verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Um, Four times in this section of scripture, Paul expresses his joy over their repentance with God. You see, God uses Paul's severe letter, um, and it brings Paul this overwhelming joy to see their response, to see their repentance. Two great joys I want you to see of repentance. First, True repentance results in the joy of reconciliation with others. You remember those times when you've done wrong, right? And uh, there's this barrier, and there's this strangeness between you and that other person. And my guess is you've also experienced the other side when that, the great relief and the happiness and the, the, the lifted burden when those barriers are gone and, and, and the reconciliation has taken place. I mean, I've had that happen with friends. I've had that happen with family members. That's exactly what's happened here with Paul and, and these believers here in Corinth. In fact, look back with me at verse 2. Chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts, Paul says for us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together, to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all of our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Paul here is expressing his love for these believers, his commitment to them. They are in his heart. Um, These believers have seen the error of their ways and They've asked for forgiveness and and repented. And for that, he says, I'm proud of you. See, I want you to know, you you need to watch out for those people who say, you know, 
I'm okay with God. I'm, I'm right with God. But then they have no interest in being reconciled to the people that their sin has injured. If your heart is truly repentant and you see sin for what it is, then you will be grieved not only about how it affects God, but also how it affects others as well. You're going to call your dad on the phone and say, Dad, I'm sorry I was wrong. You're going to write a letter and you're going to build your half of the bridge towards reconciliation. There's a second joy here that I want to point out. It's a greater um, joy, I think, the joy of reconciliation with God. See, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you see in the rearview mirror that, you know, makes you feel shame, you can experience God's grace and his genuine forgiveness through repentance. You can break the chains to your past and you can go forward in a glorious future. I mean, look at the list that Paul gives us here out of verse 11, what's produced by repentance. Verse 11, foresee what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. <laughs> Heading this list, you notice this? Heading this list is their renewed Earnestness, he says. Earnestness is haste and diligence. When a person, see, when they repent, there is an increased sense of urgency and eagerness to get business done with God. There's a renewed concern for what does God think? Notice also that word fear there in the middle of that. What fear, he says. See, fears. um the attitude of heart that seeks a right relationship with the, the source of that fear. Um, if I'm afraid of fire, you know what? I, then I, I stand back from that fire. If I'm afraid of water, listen, I, I don't go in over my head. If I'm afraid of God, I'm very careful to, to be obedient, to do exactly what he's asked for. The fear of God is a good thing, Scripture says. The fear of God is a beginning of wisdom, the book of Proverbs tells us. It all starts there. When a person is truly repentant, I think it's, it's like the story of the prodigal son. Remember that story? The prodigal son wakes up one day in that pig yard and thinks to himself, what am I doing here? I don't want to live like this. I don't, I don't want to be this kind of a person. This type of life has only brought me misery. It's time to go home to my heavenly father. Listen, I got to tell you, if there's one underlying theme that goes from Genesis to Revelation, a theme that God announces in every generation, Old Testament, New Testament, and beyond, it's repentance. Spiritual life it doesn't exist unless ignited through repentance. It just doesn't happen. 
Repentance is a word in the mouth. You find it in the mouth of every Old Testament prophet. I mean, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Jonah, uh, Hosea, all of them uh, preached that same message, repent. I mean, they, they, they came up to the pulpit and look out at their congregation and they say, good morning, repent. And then they'd walk off, <laughs> get in their chariot and they'd ride across town. They'd step up to another pulpit and say, hello, repent. And they'd leave, close the service. They knew that the good things God is longing, willing, and ready to give are released into your life through repentance. In the early church, you find that same message from the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, the very first message that was preached by Peter after the Holy Spirit came was about repentance. In Acts chapter 3, Peter again says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Over and over again, the scriptures say repentance unleashes an, an awesome energy from heaven that forgives and restores and, and renews and redirects. I tell you, there is no greater energy in all of creation then that energy that's unleashed when a repentant sinner cries out to God in sorrow for his or her sin. See, I got to tell you, the goal of true repentance is to bring about a reconciled life with God. That's the goal. You know, John the Baptist, he had that same message, right? Matthew tells us, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whenever John baptized, you've got to realize it was different than our baptism that we had here on Easter. Our baptism was a baptism into new life. It was a baptism of, uh, you know, of the resurrection. But John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Um, have you ever wondered, you know, why did Jesus, the Son of God, step forward to be baptized by John? I mean, after all, Jesus, he had nothing to repent of, right? Can I suggest that Jesus began his ministry in the same exact way that he ended it? He ended his ministry, right, by being crucified. By being crucified and covered with the sins of the whole world. He began his ministry by being baptized, identifying voluntarily with the sins of the world. Listen, I'm going to borrow an illustration from Gordon MacDonald because I think it, it helps explain what I'm talking about here. I think it's very helpful. Imagine that we're standing around John, uh, you know, when John the Baptizer is baptizing people. Um, and because we understand that, you know, big things um, like this, they, they all need to be organized, um, you know, we decided we're going to make a plan. Um, one of us says, you know, um, to everyone, listen, when you decide to come and repent, folks, uh, we want you to register. We want to get your name down on a, on a mailing list, and we'll give you a name tag so that the baptizers can be more personal with you when you, when you go to them. Just, just step forward, tell us your first name and your most awful sin. <laughs> Up the table steps Bob. Name? 
Bob, what's your most awful sin, Bob? Well, I hate to admit it, but I stole some money from my boss once. Person takes out a marker, writes, Bob, embezzler. Next person, name, Mary. Mary, what's your most awful sin? I slandered some people. You know, I said some things that were pretty mean, weren't true. I just didn't like them. So the person writes, Mary, slanderer. Next person, name, Joel. What's your most awful sin? Well, (laughs) pride, I guess. I get so caught up in needing people to think I'm good, to think highly of me. Person writes, Joel, pride. And the person writing them slaps those name tags on the chest of each person. Then all these people with their their name tags, they step into line uh, on the river there waiting to be baptized in repentance. Up the table comes Jesus. (laughs) Jesus' most awful sin? Well, there isn't any. So Jesus starts walking down that line and he steps up to Bob and says, Bob, give me your name tag. And he puts it on himself. Steps up to Mary. Mary, give me your name tag. Takes that name tag off. Slaps it on himself. Steps up to Joel. Says, here, give me your name tag, Joel. Slaps it on himself. (laughs) And soon, the son of God, perfect son of God, is covered with the name tags and these awful sins. In this vision, Jesus goes down into the water, presents himself to, to John. The Savior is baptized. <laughs> and again, at, being, at, at the risk of being a little bit trite, um, in this vision, the people that had um, you know, written those names and identified those sins, they had bought markers that didn't have indelible ink, you know? And so when Jesus comes up out of that water, the ink has all been washed off and is floating down the river. And I recall the words, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Huh. Friends, that's what repentance does. That's what Jesus' ministry, it, it, what it's all about. Without him, you and I are stuck. Back to Ben Patterson. Remember, he was stuck there on that mountain, scared. He writes, it took an hour for my experienced climbing friends to find me. Standing on the rock that I wanted to reach, one of them leaned out and used an ice axe to chip two little footsteps in the glacier. Then he gave me the following instructions. Ben, you must step out from where you are and put your foot where the first foothold is. Without a moment's hesitation, swing your other foot across and land it in the next step. Then reach out and I'll take your hand and I'll pull you to safety. But listen carefully. As you step across, Ben, don't lean into the mountain. If anything, lean out a bit. Otherwise, your feet could fly out from underneath you and you'll start sliding down. Patterson writes, listen, when I'm on the edge of a cliff, my instinct is to lie down and hug that mountain to become one with it, 
not to lean away from it. But that was what my good friend was telling me to do as I stood trembling on that glacier. I looked at him real hard. For a moment, based solely on what I believed to be true about the goodwill and good sense of my friend, I decided to say no to what I felt, to lean out, to step out, and traverse that ice to safety. It took less than two seconds to find out if my faith was well-founded. It was. Listen, I have done that. Same thing over and over and over again. And I know there are people here who have had to do it as well. You found yourself stuck. Nowhere to move. You uh, can't go back. You can't go down. You, you, you can't go up. You can't go forward. And then Jesus reaches out his hand and says, all you have to do is trust me. Just trust me. You're stuck. And you've gone the wrong way. All you need to do is trust me because I know the right way. My hand is here. Lean out and I'll pull you to safety. That's what repentance is all about. The Bible is clear on this. He or she who comes to God in brokenness and in sorrow, in good grief, and in openness will hear the words, you are cleansed and you're forgiven and restored forever to what God has meant you to be. Don't deny yourself the incredible power of repentance. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for what you have done for us on the cross. That you offer your hand and offer to say, I know the right way. Take my hand. I'll rescue you. You'll be safe. Lord, I pray for anyone here that is at that place, they're feeling stuck. God, might this desire, this, this attitude and action of repentance become ours. I pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.